Uh, so today's reading is from Titus, and it's chapter 3, verses 8 um, to 15. I'll give you a minute to get it. The saying is trustworthy, and I want you to insist on these things, so that those who believe in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. These things are excellent and profitable for people, but avoid foolish conversations, genealogies, dissensions and quarrels about the law, for they are unprofitable and worthless. As for a person who stirs up division, after warning him once and then twice, have nothing more to do with him. Knowing that such a person is warped and sinful, he is self-condemned. When I send Artemis and Ticketus to you, do your best to come to me at Nicopolis, for I have decided to spend the winter there. Do your best to speed Zenith the lawyer and Apollos on their way. See that they lack nothing, and let our people learn to devote themselves to good works, so as to help cases of urgent need and not be unfruitful. All who are with me send greetings to you, Greet those who love us in the faith. Grace be with you all. Dear Father, Lord, um, we thank you for your word. Um, we pray as we listen um, that our hearts would be changed, that we would be convicted, that we would be not only listeners of the word but doers. We just thank you. In your name, Amen. I always give the Bible readings with lots of names and places away to other people, as you can see. So good job, Lauren, uh, for managing to work your way through those. Um, we come to the, the final uh, sermon in our series in Titus. We've been spending the last couple of months uh, looking at the book of Titus um, as a blueprint uh, for godliness, a blueprint not just for our church to be uh, a godly church, but what does it look like to be godly people, which is what we are called to do. I wonder if you have asked the question of yourself or you are asking the question, what am I going to devote my life to? Or maybe you're at a stage in your life where you're thinking, you're, you're further on in your life and you're thinking, what am I devoting my life to? What is the purpose of my life? What am I devoting my time and my energy and my abilities to? The reality is that we all long to devote our lives to something. We long for a purpose in life. We ultimately long, too, to devote our lives to someone. Well, Titus 3, this last chunk of the book, is all about that word devotion. It's all about devoting our lives to good works, to godliness. Godliness that flows from devotion to Jesus in the gospel. It's all about devoting ourselves to, to Jesus and to the, the life of godliness that he saves us for. And it's not just Titus 3 that's been calling us to this devotion, to this purpose. We've been seeing it throughout the whole uh, letter. We've been called to devote our lives to um, uh, godliness in the church and in the home and in the, the world. We don't need to figure out what we're to devote our lives to. That's what Titus has been showing us. We don't need to figure out what our purpose is. Titus tells us it's godliness. It's godliness. It's full of the godliness that we're called to in all the different areas of life that we walk in. We don't need to grasp or have a crisis about what we're to give ourselves to, what our purpose is to be. Titus has shown us that we're to devote ourselves to good works, to godliness. 
shows us what it's looked like to be a devoted Christian and to be a devoted church. And it also invites those of us who maybe aren't Christians or who are figuring that out to see that a life devoted to the gospel and to good works that flow from the gospel is a life worth living, is a good life. It's a life with hope and eternal life in the age to come. So here's the big response that's called from this passage. Devote yourself to good works that flow from the trustworthy gospel. Devote yourself to good works that flow from the trustworthy gospel. Four things we're going to see together this morning that define a devoted Christian and a devoted church. First thing is that they insist on gospel truth. A devoted Christian and church insists on gospel truth. If you look down again at verse 8, the Lord read to us, the saying is trustworthy, and I want you to insist on these things. These things, the things that it is trustworthy and that we're to insist on are all the things that come before just in verses 4 to 7 that we explored last week, that great um, declaration of the goodness of God in saving us. Let's just read that again, okay? Let's not grow tired of that. Chapter 3, verses 4 to 7, here, are the thing, here is the saying that is trustworthy. Here are the things that we are to insist on or to stress, as other translations put it. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, he saved us not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. This saying is trustworthy, and I want you to insist on these things. Why does Paul here remind Titus, remind us, that we can trust this, that this is trustworthy? Because so often we doubt, don't we? So often we become distracted perhaps because of suffering or, or peer pressure or false teaching, which we saw earlier on in the book, we can begin to doubt, is this really true? Is Jesus really at work in my life? Is eternal life just a fairy tale? Or is that hope real? We see that we can trust these things because back in chapter 1, we're reminded that these things are based on the promises of a God who never lies. A God who cannot lie. It's in his very nature. They're based on true events in the past. If you look at chapter 2, verse 11, just a little bit up, the, these promises, this grace has appeared. It's not hiding somewhere. It's not a fairy tale. It's not make-believe. Jesus was a real historical person. These things really happened. We can trust these things. And they have been recorded for us or as the chapter 1 describes, manifested in his words. These things are recorded in the Bible reliably. We can trust what we see here. They're based on the promises of God. They're based on true events in the past. And they're contained in the Bible. We can trust these things. In times of doubt, in times of distraction, or maybe just because we find it hard. We find it hard to walk with Jesus. We think it's too costly. It's too difficult. We're not winning the battles we'd long to win. The Spirit is in you, renewing you. 
The hope of eternal life is yours. God doesn't ask us to build our lives or build this church on a fairy tale. He calls us to build them on the trustworthy gospel and on the historical person and work of Jesus. That's why they can be trusted. That's why we need to trust them. And then we're to insist on them. We're to trust, verses 4 to 7, and we're to insist on these things. We're to stress them. Uh, the, the same word is used in 1 Timothy 1.17, where it says we're to confidently affirm them. Confident. We're to stress them and to confidently affirm them. These are the, 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 these are the things that we are to be about this is to be our priority. These are the things that we're to stress. As you go about your life, as we gather as a church, if someone was to ask, what are those people about? What do they, what do they talk about? What do they live for? What do they, what, what do they tell people in their lives as they go about their daily lives? It's these things. It's the priority. As I, when I used to work for uh, EDF, every day I drove in, to the station, the power station, and there was a sign that said, safety is our number one priority. Safety is our number one priority. It dictated everything that you did from the, the moment you drove in to the moment you drove out from the speed limits that went in to the fact that you had to hold a handrail up every stair that you took. So it is to be with the gospel, with the truth of verses four to seven. That is to be our number one priority. That is to be the thing that defines everything we do. People should see that. People should hear that. People should know that. Verses 4 to 7 are the main thing. We're not to forget them. We're to remember them and trust them. This is salvation. This is the gospel. These are the things of first importance that Paul talked about in 1 Corinthians 15. This is what we do believe. Just so you know, this is what we believe as Christians. This is what you have to believe as a Christian. This is what we believe as a church. If you're not a Christian, this is what you're called to believe. This is what we are to embrace by repentance for sin and faith in Christ. <coughs> to stress these things, to insist on these things, means we teach them, we preach them, we talk about them, we memorize them, we meditate on them around the dinner table, conversations in the car, in this church, in your workplace, to one another as you gather and spend time over tea and coffee in small groups and prayer nights and men's and women's ministry. We have to stress these things. We're to stress the good and loving kindness of God in saving us through Jesus. We're to drill down deep into these things as Christians. I wonder if, as you read verses 4 to 7, as we thought about it last week and even read them now, and even just looking back up to verses 11 to 14 in chapter 2, how does that compare to the gospel that you grew up with? How does that compare to the gospel that you now grasp? Does that match the depth of understanding that you have about what Jesus has done for you, what God has done for you? How deep is your gospel definition and doctrine? Do you grasp the depths and the deadness and depravity of sin, the reality of final judgment and heaven and hell? Do you understand the first appearing of Christ and the incarnation, which we're about to spend a month thinking about? Do you grasp the truths of election and regeneration and repentance and faith and justification and sanctification and glorification? Do you get that the work of salvation is a Trinitarian work? It's the work of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, as you see in those verses. The kindness of the Father, the renewal of the Spirit, the sacrifice of the Son. 
Do you get these things? Do you understand these things? Do you treasure these things? Now, just before you panic and think, man, I, I don't really know a lot of that, let me not take away from the simplicity of salvation either. Coming to Jesus is coming as a child like faith, with a child like faith. It's as simple as turning from our sin and trusting in Jesus. Don't let me make you think it's anything uh, more complicated than that. But at the same time, if we really want to grow, if we really want to grasp the significance of these things for our present lives and our future lives, we need to drill deep into these things. We need to know them. We need to plumb the depths of the gospel. The gospel in many ways is a simple thing, but it's also a very deep thing. Elsewhere in the New Testament, Paul talks about the mystery of the gospel. There's a sense in which we can never fully plumb the depths of what God has done for us in Jesus. If we want to combat false gospels, if we want to help those who are deconstructing their faith, we need deep gospel doctrine. We want to ensure the gospel and God's word is passed on to the next generation faithfully. We can't assume this stuff. We need to know it and treasure it and talk about it and dive deep into it and pass it on diligently. And we must never think as Christians, you know, that the gospel is something for young Christians, that we learn it and we kind of park it and then we move on to more deep things, bigger, better Bible studies and all these other things that we might explore. Yes, we should get to know God's word better, but we must never think that we graduate from the gospel. We never outgrow that because the gospel is more than past salvation. It proclaims a future hope and it's fuel for present godliness. We fail to see that we will not grow in godliness and we will not maintain our hope. Tim Keller, uh, the late uh, preacher and writer, says this about the gospel. He says, the gospel is not just the ABCs, but the A to Z of the Christian life. I've always found that statement so helpful. It's not just the ABCs, it's the A to Z of the Christian life. He says, it's inaccurate to think the gospel is what saves non-Christians and then Christians mature by trying hard to live according to biblical principles. It is more accurate to say that we are saved by believing the gospel and then we are transformed in every part of our minds and our hearts and lives by believing the gospel more and more deeply as life goes on. And the biggest reason that Titus calls us here in, in chapter 3, verse 8, to insist on these things and to stress these things, if you look down, the saying is trustworthy and I want you to insist on these things. Why? So that those who have believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. We see that the gospel saves us but it also completely transforms our lives. Completely changes our lives to be a lives of good works. I remember uh, reading somewhere that one of the biggest reasons that Christians or, or maybe even non-Christians become apathetic to the gospel or abandon or reject it or just become lethargic in their walk later on in life is because they don't see the relevance of the gospel to everyday life. They kind of grow up with this four-point presentation of the gospel, which we need and we should keep drilling into, but we never make the connection between what the gospel is to how it impacts every corner of our lives, every relationship, every circumstance. We need to show how the gospel leads to good works, and we need to show what those good works look like. 
We need to show how the gospel applies into the grit of everyday life, of marriage, of work and parenting and character and authority and speech and conflict and hospitality, all of which are in Titus, by the way. Well, Titus is a great book to demonstrate how the gospel is relevant to our lives, how it changes our lives. Shows us how the gospel motivates good works, leads to the good life, and has a transformative impact, not just on our lives, but the lives of those around us and on our society. That's the second thing we see, a devoted Christian and church insists on gospel truth and devotes themselves to good works. Again, just read verse 8, saying, "Is trustworthy, I want you to insist on these things so that those who believe in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. These things are excellent and profitable for people. And then if you just jump down to verse 14, and let our people learn to devote themselves to good works so as to help cases of urgent need and not be unfruitful. So you see this whole section is bracketed by this call to the devotion to good works. Now, we, again, it's important to clarify, good works do not contribute to or form the ground of our salvation. The verses last week made that clear. We are justified by grace according to God's mercy, not by works done in us, okay? So this, we, it's never, we should never assume that. We are saved by grace alone and faith in Christ alone. We are right to emphasize that. There is nothing we can do to contribute or add to our salvation. It's not by works, it's by grace through faith in Christ. But, but we must emphasize good works as the fruit of salvation. Here's maybe where in our tradition we have perhaps, and I'm not saying this is true of all of us or every church, but here's maybe in our tradition, our historical church tradition, where we have been about what we're against and forgotten to be about good works as a fruit of salvation. Maybe we've so emphasized salvation by faith alone that we have not placed enough emphasis on the godliness and the good works that must flow from the gospel. James 2.17 says that faith without works is dead. It's a stark statement, isn't it? Faith without works is dead. Titus has, all, has been all about good works. If you jump just back to 3 verse 1, he says we're to be ready for every good work. You see that phrase come up again and again in Titus, good works, good works, good works, good works. And in our passage this morning, we see that verse 8 calls us to be careful to devote ourselves to good works. And verse 14, we are to learn to devote ourselves to good works. That tells us good works and godliness are not automatic. They're not automatic. They don't happen by accident. Our good works, our godliness is thought through, intentional, practiced, and considered. What are the good works then that Paul is referring to? Well, it's everything we've seen throughout the whole letter. It's the godly character of chapter 1, verses 5 to 9, that we saw is to be exemplified by elders, but which, in a sense, we're all to live out. It's the opposite of the kind of behavior we saw in chapter 1 with the false teachers who were liars and lazy gluttons and caused conflict. 
It's the everyday godly behavior of chapter 2 that we saw in the church and in the home and in the workplace. It's the good works that we are to do in the world that we saw last week in chapter 3, verses 1 to 2. Submission to authorities, speaking evil of no one, avoiding quarreling, being gentle, showing perfect courtesy towards all people. These are the good works. This is the good life that Titus talks about. And verse 14, though, has a specific thing for us to see this morning. Let us learn to devote ourselves to good works. Verse 14, so as to help cases of urgent need and not be unfruitful. We see here then that in our passage this morning that good works has a primary focus. It's to help cases of urgent need. And I was kind of thinking about this and why I emphasize cases of urgent need as an outworking of good works in this section. Well, as we'll come on to in a minute, it's particularly within the context of supporting gospel work through all those names that Lauren read. But I wonder too if it's to do with the fact that one of the, the primary evidences of real godliness is a desire to help people in need. It's an outward-focused desire to help people in need. The kind of primary evidence or example that Jesus himself set in the Gospels, in the kind of cases of urgent need, and the kind of people that he primarily moved towards. Gerald Bray, the commentator, says about cases of urgent need, he says this, deciding what that need was could be left to the circumstances and the judgment of the church. So there's, there's no kind of defined what are those cases of need. There could be a whole bunch of things. He says we, we almost automatically think in terms of poor relief, so relief for the poor, which is included, and that was probably part of it, he says, but there could have been any number of things that would qualify. For example, people would be expected to rally around if someone's house was burnt down, a not unknown phenomenon in ancient times. They also might be called to help in times of sickness and to offer hospitality to strangers. Basically to say that those cases of urgent need could be a number of things. Let me encourage you to look around this room and consider what are the cases of urgent need? Where, are the, the, where is help most needed in the, these days? Both physical, but also spiritual. Perhaps someone needs urgent spiritual encouragement or counsel. Perhaps someone needs a particular physical need met. Let me encourage you to look around the room to remember the Scripture teaching that we are to firstly prioritize our own families, then we are to prioritize the church, and then we are to prioritize those around us, our neighbors. We are to be aware of others' needs. We should be aware and considerate enough to know what's going on in other people's lives, not in a nosy way, but in a caring way. We should also not be embarrassed to ask for help We're to consider our own family, we're to consider our community, we're to consider our neighbors, and we are to remember the poor. And maybe particularly as we approach this time of year and some of the opportunities we'll get as a church with Kincaid's and across the road, or even your own neighbors or your own family members, to consider those who need help. The end of verse 14 there exhorts us not to be unfruitful, or we could think of it as not to be unproductive. A daily, careful focus 
on how we live out our faith. It is needed to do good works. It's essential to being a fruitful Christian. It's easy to become unfruitful. It's easy to become unproductive. It's easy to drift into ungodliness and not caring about others' needs. Just to say, I, I, I don't really see that around here. I see a lot of care and a lot of help, so I'm encouraged by that. But it, let's not drift from those things. Let's not become complacent in those things. It can be easy to just take care of ourselves and our own lives and live in our own little bubbles and not look outside of ourselves and consider those around us. It's easy to come and go from church and not really get to know people and not really know what the cases of urgent need are. It's easy not to examine and seek to change our character, which is part of good works. It's easy not to pursue godliness in the home and in the workplace and in the church. So we're to be focused on good works. We're to be fruitful in doing them. Um, and the verse 14, that idea of, not being, of being unfruitful gives us a picture of that when we don't, aren't careful to devote ourselves to good works and to learn uh, to do good works, we'll shrivel up and begin to weather in our walk with Jesus. Why should we devote ourselves to good works? Well, verse 14's already given us uh, one big reason, to help others. Our good works help others. That should be our heart, to help others. That should be what this church is, a place that helps cases of urgent need. We get to cultivate that. We get to provide and build a place where cases of urgent need are met. And also look at the end of verse 8. Why are we to devote ourselves to good works? These things are excellent and profitable for all people. It's worth it. These aren't just okay things. They aren't just kind of worthwhile. They're excellent. They're profitable. And they're for people. Maybe if you're growing weary in good works or you've not really been careful to devote yourself to good works, remind yourself of the end of verse 8. This is why we give ourselves these things. They're excellent. They're profitable. And they're for people. Don't grow weary in them. Don't grow lazy in them. It's worth it. Good works are worth it. It's worth the devotion. It's worth the effort. It helps people and it pleases God. So good works are profitable. Devoting ourselves to good works are profitable. But there are things that are unprofitable. And if we think about it, if we're to devote ourselves to good works, then there are distractions or things which we should avoid. That's the third thing we see. A devoted Christian or church insists on gospel truth, devotes themselves to good works, and avoids foolish division. If you look down again at verses 9 to 11, I'll just read those again. So we devote ourselves to, to, to and stress these things, but we avoid these things. Avoid foolish controversies, genealogies, dissensions, and quarrels about the law, for they are unprofitable and worthless. The opposite of good works which are profitable and excellent. Two things to avoid here. Foolish controversies and divisive people. Foolish controversies and divisive people. The foolish controversies is kind of expanded in uh, verse 9 there. And it's defined as four things. Foolish controversies, genealogies, 
dissensions and quarrels about the law. And again, we are drawn back to think about the people we met in verses 10 to 16 who were doing these things, who were causing controversy and stirring up dissension and fights. They were emphasizing circumcision. They were having quarrels about the law. They were adding circumcision to the gospel. They were muttering on about Jewish myths, and they were overemphasizing the commands of people. Drawing direct parallels between then and to you and me today isn't immediately obvious, but perhaps we can ask ourselves some questions about whether this is happening around us or that we're contributing to these kind of uh, things. Tim Chester gets us to ask the question, what do you discuss at your church gatherings and church meetings? Over tea and coffee, do you plan how you'll tell the world about the kindness of God or do you get bogged down in quarrels about things that are unprofitable? When you eat together, you hang out together or meet up during the week, what do you talk about? If you go to a Christian conference, what do you talk about in the breaks? Do you talk about the kindness of God or the latest controversy in the Christian world? Do you prefer reading a blog about some contentious issue or one that stresses the gospel? Our default is to get caught up in talking about controversies and fights and quarrels and all those kind of things. I speak as someone who did a lot of that back in university. University was a really formative time for me in my faith, but it was also a time when it was easy to get bogged down in theological debates with other Christians and wasting too much time talking about all those kind of doctrinal differences and the latest Christian controversy. And whenever that time would have been better used, stressing the gospel, devoting myself to good works, helping people in need, and pursuing godly character. It's good to study God's Word. It's good to dive deep into theology. It's not a bad thing to be aware of what's going on in the Christian world around you. But don't get caught up in all the controversies and the blog arguments and the, the things of the day. Stress the gospel. Do good works. Help people in need. Pursue godly character. Be about those things. What are you going to be known for? What are you known for? the godly man or woman who stresses the gospel and does good works, or the man or woman who loves controversy, debate, quarrels, and is unproductive in the faith. Getting bogged down in those things is unprofitable and worthless. It's not even just kind of a slight waste of time. It's just worthless. Let me stress, though, that it does say foolish controversies. Not all controversies are bad. Not all controversies should be avoided. It's foolish controversies. There are controversies which the church must and unavoidably wade into. There are things to divide over, okay? There are things of first importance, things tied closely to the gospel, which we must take a stand on for the sake of gospel unity and the reputation of God. So let me just stress that there are controversies which cannot be avoided and must be waded into. Yes, we must be careful about how we do that, but what's in view here are foolish controversies, things that are not of first importance, 
things that don't produce gospel fruit. That means that we need a lot of wisdom to know when to avoid these things and what to avoid. Because it's not always easy to identify which battles we should fight, which things we should give our time to. We should always strive to ensure that we don't divide unnecessarily. However, as I've mentioned, there is a time to distance ourselves from teaching or people who persist in stirring up division. Verse 10 tells us that. As for a person who stirs up division after warning him once and then twice, have nothing more to do with him. Verse 11, knowing that such a person is warped and sinful and is self-condemned. What do we do with people who just will not drop it? Who are intent on stirring up division and pursuing foolish controversies, adding things to the gospel, distorting the gospel, or distracting us from the mission of the church? Well, it's kind of clear. We give them a warning. And if they persist, we give them a second warning. And if they persist again, we excommunicate them. We have nothing to do with them. That's what verse 11 tells us. Have nothing more to do with them. In many ways, it resembles what we see in Matthew 18, that clear process set out for church discipline. Initially, it might seem harsh, but this is really a gracious confrontation. The person here is given time to repent and to change, to back down from being argumentative and divisive and pursuing foolish controversies. They're given time to repent and to change. The, the goal here is not to boot them out the door, the first sign of any kind of difficulty, but to give them an opportunity to change. Yet, for the sake of church unity and the reputation of the gospel, we cannot afford to let people like this persist. It's a fair process, but it's not a prolonged one. There must be action for the sake of gospel unity, church unity, and the reputation of the gospel, sometimes these things are necessary. Who is to do the warning and the removing? Well, we see in Matthew 18 that it starts off with one-on-one, two-on-one. It's a process that's led by the elders on behalf of the whole church. Uh, and we see in Matthew 18 that whilst the elders would eventually lead, if it got to the, the case of excommunication, it's done on the basis of multiple witnesses and only after the matter has been told to the whole church. Maybe you're thinking, I've never seen that happen. Maybe two reasons for that. By God's grace, you've never been a part of a church where it had to happen. You should give thanks for that. Or maybe we've been part of churches that haven't been courageous enough to do it. Brothers and sisters, we must not let in this church, pragmatism, personalities, fear of man, and a desire to keep numbers inflated to stop us doing what verse 10 might call us to do. Such a person proves their intentions, verse 11 tells us. Such a person proves through their continued division that their intentions are warped and sinful and that they stand condemned. It's a weighty thing to have to do. Reminded in Matthew 18 that uh, the prayer that we often use to talk about prayer gatherings, where two or three are gathered, there I am amongst them, is actually primarily reference to church discipline. Because church discipline is hard. 
in that passage, that phrase is reminding us that when two or three agreed on a difficult decision to excommunicate someone, that the Lord is with them. So beware such people. Be discerning when it comes to foolish or divisive controversies. Don't become this kind of person, okay? Make sure you have people around you who are, who are honest enough to not flatter you, but to speak truth into your life. Be part of a church that deals with harmful controversy and division. Pray for yourself, and maybe particularly pray for elders as we seek to guard ourselves against such arguments and such people. Guard your conversations and guard your heart and your time from things that would distract you or divide us from the gospel and godliness. Insist on gospel truth, devote to good works, avoid foolish division, and then finally support gospel work. A devoted Christian and church devote, supports gospel work. You look down again at verses 12 to 15. When I send Artemis or Tychicus to you, do your best to come to me at Nicopolis, for I have decided to spend the winter there. Do your best to speed Zenus the lawyer and Apollos on their way. See that they lack nothing. So as is typical often in Paul's letters, we get another snapshot at the end of the work that's going on behind the scenes to spread the gospel and to plant churches around the globe. A number of things we see here going on that serve to support gospel work. Verse 12, we see sending. Paul sends Artemis and Tychicus. Sending is part of supporting gospel work. We see going. We see that Titus has already gone to Crete and now Paul's calling him to leave Crete. We see sending, we see going, we see building. What is it that Titus was sent to, to Crete to do? To put into order what remained, to appoint elders, to teach sound doctrine, to rebuke those who contradicted it. Supporting gospel work involves sending and going, it involves building, and it also involves the act of supporting. We see there in verse 13, do your best to speed Zenus, the lawyer, see that they lack nothing. It's to meet needs, practical needs, that in order the gospel to spread, whether that's in this church or in partnership with others or in other churches or whatever it might be. I don't know exactly what the, they were to make sure they lacked, probably food or water. Um, make sure that they lack nothing. Make sure that they lack nothing that would enable them to go and do the work of spreading the gospel and strengthening churches. And then the last thing we see is partnering, sending, going, building, supporting, and partnering. We see here a number of different men working together. And not just men, but obviously we see throughout the New Testament, men and women working together, coordinating with one another to, to spread the gospel and establish churches. And interesting, who's included? Apollos. The Apollos mentioned here is likely the same Apollos that's talked about in 1 Corinthians, the, the Apollos that some people prefer to Paul. You remember? I prefer, I follow Paul. I, some others said, I follow Apollos. The Corinthians would make it seem as if there was some kind of, um, kind of competition going on between Paul and Apollos. Who can plant the most churches? Who's the better preacher? Who's doing the most gospel work? But there's no such competitiveness between them here at all we see that Paul and Apollos and these other people are happy to partner together, to go and to send, to spread the gospel. There's no competitiveness here. 
Paul models unity and humility in spreading the gospel. So does Apollos. He's gone to Crete. He's followed Paul's directions. Reminds us that it's all too easy to become competitive in ministry. To prefer one person to another, to think that we are better than someone else. And not just between churches, but within the church. Here we see that the main concern is getting the gospel out. Getting the gospel out, planting churches, strengthening believers. That's what we're to be about. It doesn't matter ultimately who, who does it or, or who will get the recognition or the credit for it. It's ultimately all for him. And it's ultimately to see people come to faith. And notice two things that define the relationship between Paul and Titus and these people in verses 12 to 15 and, and between the churches in Crete too. Two things which define them, love. All who are with me send greetings to you. Verse 15, greet those who love us. They love one another. And they share the common faith. Who love us in the faith. Here's what defines our partnership. Here's what defines our friendship. Here's what should define our church on our relationship with other churches. Where there is gospel unity. Love in a common faith. The common faith that Paul spoke about at the beginning of the letter. So you and I are called to be a people, to be a church who are involved in sending, in going, in building, in supporting, and in partnering for the sake of the gospel and the establishment of churches. For some, that may well mean in the future that you are literally sent or that you go. Not anytime soon, because we're still getting this thing off the ground, right? But who knows? For some of us, that may mean in the future we're sent or that we go. It's been the case for us. It's been the case for other people in this room who've sacrificed in very, and maybe not changing country or time, but sacrificed in, in various ways to be sent and to go. Who knows what the Lord might ask of us, of you, as we seek to spread the gospel and see churches planted in our own region, in, 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 our, in our nation? should all have a willingness, yes, with wisdom, and it'll look different for everyone, but should all have a willingness to, in some way, go, send, support, build, partner. And of course, sending and going isn't just going to a different country. It also involves an everyday sense of going into our workplaces, our communities, our supermarkets, the school gate, moving towards other people for the sake of the gospel. As a church and as individuals, we're all involved in the work of building right now, of building this church in the strength of Christ, to see it established, to see it grow. That's something that we are involved in. We are, in many ways, uh, like the church in Crete. We're young. We're figuring things out. We're to give ourselves to that work. You have an opportunity to live this out right here, right now. We get to support the work of the gospel with our time, our talents, and our treasures. And we've experienced partnership in the gospel, haven't we, through the people who've been sent to us, and Lord willing, we get to do that for others in the future. We are called to partner in the gospel, which is something we do on a global and national and regional scale through various partnerships. Why? Now we go back to chapter one. For the sake of the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth, which accords with godliness. For the sake of people's faith. That's why we give ourselves to these things. 
for the sake of their faith and their knowledge of the truth, which accords with godliness. We get to give our lives to help people find faith in Jesus, strengthen their faith in Jesus, and pursue a godly life, a good life. That's what we get to give our lives to in whatever way, with whatever gifts the Lord has given us. We get to pursue godliness together so that the doctrine of God our Savior would be adorned to the people who watch in on us. That's a devoted life. It's a joyful life. It's also a life based on grace. That's how he ends this letter. Grace be with you all. The grace that he's spoken about previously has appeared in Jesus. The grace that justifies us. It's what our lives are built on. So this is what godliness looks like. This is what a devoted life looks like. This is what grace does. Let's devote ourselves to these things. Let's devote ourselves to good works that flow from the incredible, trustworthy gospel. The gospel of grace. Let's pursue this blueprint for godliness in our lives, in this church, in our homes, in this world. Let's dig deeper into the gospel and adorn that doctrine for the world around us. Let me pray for us. Father, we come to you as those who uh, so often are not devoted in living the godly life that you call us to. So we ask for your forgiveness. We thank you in Jesus that when we seek you, you do forgive us. We thank you that you've put your spirit within us to renew us and to change us. Please make us more like him. Please help us to be careful to devote ourselves to good works and godliness. Help us, Father, to stress the most important things. Help us not to get bogged down in things that would distract us from the gospel, from the mission of the church, and from the godly life that you call us to. Give us wisdom, Father, to know when that's right. Wisdom to know when to back off and not get bogged down in things, Father. And help us to do these things together. Help us to show the kind of love and affection that we so often see amongst those who are spreading the gospel in the New Testament. Help us to have that love, that affection, and that partnership together. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.